Uh, my name is Caroline Krauss. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher, and for this project, I was affiliated with the Kandel Center for Child and Youth Depression at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada. Um, and we conducted um, a scoping review that looked at different evidence types to find out whether problem-solving training um, works for youth with depression. My name is Robin Milden. I'm the executive director for the Centre for Evidence and Implementation. Um, I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. CEI, as we call ourselves, has offices here in Australia, Singapore and in the UK. And I would also like to acknowledge we had some fabulous collaborators on this piece of work. So Professor Aaron Schlonsky at Monash University, Professor Bryce McLeod at Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Christina Metz, who was, uh, who is at, not was, John Hopkins University. Uh, we conducted a systematic review of the evidence for the effectiveness and implementation of problem solving now for the prevention and treatment of depression with young people. Tell us first of all what problem solving therapy is, because I guess problem solving as a concept is something that most people have probably got a handle on, but what does it mean in terms of a therapy? There is a there is a body of work called problem solving therapy, which is sort of a, a packaged known intervention. For our review, we excluded that and focused primarily on problem solving as a potential active ingredient for the prevention and treatment of depression. So as a, it's a common component of things like cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal therapy, um, problem solving itself is a is commonly used as a series of in a series of steps to help people think about um, identify what the problem is and develop skills in um, better formulation of it, generation of alternatives um, to address that problem, help make decisions about what to do, and then put the solution in place. And most um, ways of doing problem solving are quite common. Just some problem solving therapy, for example, has less steps than say something like CETA, which is the common elements treatment approach um, that was developed at John Hopkins. They have a few extra steps in there in the use of problem solving in the context of treating and preventing depression. But it generally has the same sort of way of teaching people how to apply it and come up with solutions and see if that helps. Um, yes, it's really interesting to hear how Robin um, and her team went about it and defined it. Um, we So we did a few things in our review. We included uh, clinical trials of, uh, let's say, standalone problem-solving therapy, um, which Robin has mentioned is its own therapeutic approach and was developed in the early uh, 1970s and rooted in social learning theory where the idea is that you have to kind of learn to practically apply problem solving and as you learn that and you internalize those experiences you become a better problem solver um, if you you know if you do it in a rational way and the idea is that other types of problem solving such as just ignoring the problem and hoping it'll go away by itself or letting someone else solve your problems um, that's not rational problem solving and that's not likely to protect you um, from daily stresses or stressful uh, one-off events but if you can problem solve kind of efficiently and rationally that tends to um, protect you from stress and protect well-being and so we looked at, at um, interventions for youth that applied this concept but we also looked at um, clinical trials of broader therapy packages such as CBT um, where some analysis was done on problem-solving training as just one aspect of 
the treatment or where um, the researchers looked at whether initial problem solving ability that young people brought along um, affected treatment response. So I've got a really nerdy information science question to ask first, which is purely because I'm a nerdy information scientist, but um, how on earth did you find the stuff to get in your reviews if it was such a cross-cutting active ingredient? You know, I, I get how you find trials about cognitive behaviour therapy and anxiety, but how do you find trials about cognitive behaviour therapy that have a little bit of problem solving in there somewhere? That sounds like a really hard review to do. <laughs> yes. Um, so we had the easy bit with the kind of designated uh, problem solving therapy trials. That was easy enough, although we found only four of those. <laughs> um, but then for, for these other ones where problem solving elements are hidden. Um, well, we, we used a, a slightly unusual approach for a, a scoping review where we drew on an approach that my colleague, Darren Courtney, who was um, a co-investigator on this project, had done previously. And Darren and his team had looked at predictors, mediators, and moderators of treatment response in youth depression treatments. And so they had already created a database with um, over 150 trials. And they had already gone through and coded and identified any um, occurrences where problem solving, amongst other things, had been looked at as a predictor, moderator, or, or a kind of, let's say more globally, as a mechanism that may influence treatment response. And so we were able to, um, to go into this database and pick out um, those studies. And that would have been much more difficult otherwise. So this was a little bit driven by time, because as the three of us know on the systematic reviews um, done at a, a particular standard do take some time. So what we did was we searched for studies that included problem solving as an intervention itself um, or possibly as part of an intervention. However, we excluded CBT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialogic behaviour therapy and other forms of known treatments which have quite an established evidence base and have been shown to work. So we sort of said, look, we get that. What we're interested in is if you took problem solving out by itself and you just delivered that in a particular, you know, in the various ways people do it, which is somewhat consistent, would that have an effect for depression, which is kind of the epitome of the concept of active ingredients in that you're trying to understand there's a lot of programs that have common practice elements that um, have been kind of packaged up and are, um, the argument is that you need to deliver it as the program developers you know, have defined to a certain amount of fidelity that is following the content and the amount of uh, the dose, the amount of content um, people get. And we're saying, what if the only thing that they got was problem, sol problem solving? Would that make a difference? Um, and what you're trying to think about, what's cool about the projects that welcome this the work that Welcome's doing is this is the, the next wave of innovation design. So we think that we've got as far as we can globally understanding manualized programs that are delivered in a particular structured way. Now what we're thinking about is if the act if the common practices were pulled out, could they be active ingredients that in them by themselves could they have an effect? And if not, do we need to stack a couple? You know, maybe it's a problem-solving plus model if problem-solving by itself wasn't found to be effective. So it, it kind of allows more user-centered intervention design, theoretically, 
it, it's more scalable. So that's why we went quite firm and excluded those other studies. So we got them in our searches, but we threw them out in the in the process. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it does highlight a kind of methodological issue, doesn't it, with systematic reviews when we start to look at things which aren't clearly labelled in the literature like an active ingredient. There are so many issues. Most people, when they're studying cognitive behaviour therapy, don't don't track implementation of what was done. So, I mean, I have a, lot, a fair amount to sort of contribute in terms of where we need to go from here, but it's a real problem in the way studies are reported. People under-report in any detail what the intervention was, and they definitely under-report the extent to which it was implemented and therefore the effect on outcomes. So it's the black box of implementation that we're, we're interested in and how that relates to the effect. That's, that's right. And in our case, where we looked at um, problem solving as a, me- a kind of mechanism variable that could have been looked at in secondary analysis, well, the real problem there is those trials were never powered. They were never designed with samples large enough to look at these things. Um, and so, again, huge problems to try and draw um, meaningful conclusions from ad hoc improvised analysis. <laughs> So I'm interested in what you found and whether the findings supported your initial views. Um, Yes. So what we knew was from um, meta-analyses done for adult uh, problem-solving therapy therapy for depression, where where it shows similar effect sizes, uh, similar effectiveness to CBT and IPT, for example. So that was very encouraging. So we might have thought to see something at least similar for young people. Um, but that's not what we found. In the four standalone problem-solving therapy trials we looked at, there was one um, where problem-solving was very effective, but that was not a very robustly conducted trial with a high risk of bias. In the other three, um, there was no effect um, compared with control groups. Um, but at the same time, that's not a very strong evidence base in an of itself, you know, so we found no effect, but also just a lack of um, evidence. What we found in terms of it problem solving as a mechanism is it seems it can um, it, it can make a difference and can contribute to CBT being more effective. Um, we saw that, for example, in the TORDIA trial, a very large trial um, looking at treatment resistant depression. But again, there are such problems with the design uh, of, of the trials not made for this type of analysis that, that again, we were limited, unfortunately, to really draw conclusions. Okay, yeah. So early stages in terms of the evidence base. That's right. H- how about you, Robin? What did you find? Exactly the same. Um, we've had very mixed... Uh, firstly, the studies that um, were included finally were all very, very different. Different populations, different countries. So the the, the group that we had to work with in the end was was difficult to compare and it was mixed. We found that it worked well um, in a couple of studies where depression was assessed as mild, um, where depression was assessed as more severe, it appeared to have no effect. Um, and similar similar findings in the um, mediator moderator. So uh, all we can say is it may work for some, possibly with these characteristics. For example, it appeared not to work in a couple of studies. Well, it didn't work in a few studies where the um, they had additional mental health concerns and or some cognitive limitations. Um, for example, a study with um, young people in prisons who showed to have a number of cognitive limitations, and that's consistent with the literature around parents with intellectual disability where problem solving has been notoriously 
difficult to get an effect. So it would suggest that, again, and you think about it, horses for courses, user-centered intervention design is the next wave. On some level, that supported some of our hypothesis that we need to understand and tease out what these various active ingredients are so that we can better personalize interventions for the um, young people, the lived experience people that we're directly working with, that one way of doing something probably doesn't meet the needs of everybody, which is why I love active ingredients so much. Yes, and just to add to those excellent points, we found uh, there's one trial that was conducted um, by Daniel Mitchelson and his team, um, and they were the third team funded by Welcome to also look at problem solving. But independently from that, they conducted a trial in schools in India, in New Delhi, and they found that their problem solving training helped young people effectively solve their personal problems better. So it did have a, a kind of personalized effect, but it didn't improve their depressive symptoms compared to the control condition. Um, so I think that's getting at what Robin has said. We need to better understand when, how, and for whom these things help. And it may also be that they can be used in a kind of step care model where, or in a personalized model where, for example, only young people who really struggle with solving problems but don't have um, severe depression symptoms, for them maybe problem solving might be an interesting approach. And let me just add one more thing. The irony, well, the, the sort of almost, again, elephant in the room with problem solving is the problems have to be solvable. So, for example, with the population of young people in prison, the, the authors were, were hypothesizing, were they coming up with problems that in the current lived experience they had, they couldn't do anything about? So it's a, context really counts, I suppose, is the point there. I'm interested in what the youth advisors you worked with brought to your project and brought to your understanding. And I, I guess when there is an absence of evidence, as there is with your reviews, that's really a, a great thing to add into the mix. So tell us a bit about how you worked with youth advisors on these reviews and what they brought and whether you learned something particular from that involvement. Carolyn, do you want to answer that first? Um, yes. So we were really lucky. We had two brilliant uh, youth research partners work with us in our team. Um, and the two of them consulted a larger group of um, youth, youth advisors who are part of the youth, youth engagement initiative at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health um, and regularly advise on, on research projects and also clinical practice projects. Um, and they were consulted while the review was still ongoing, so they didn't know what we would find. Um, and what they really told us was that they see four areas where problem solving as it is now, um, and they had some experience of it in uh, DBT, for example, or as part of CBT, they felt it needed to be changed in, in four areas. And the first one was it needed to be more youth driven. Um, so they felt that too often it was the therapist who defined what the problem was or what was problematic. Um, but they felt that their own view and understanding of what's problematic should be uh, taken into account and really determine the process or the focus. Um, the second point was problem solving being more strengths based, where our youth advisors felt it was often deficit focused and used deficit focused negative language, even just talking about problems. Um, rather than, I think one, one suggestion was quests to almost gamify it a little bit. Um, so that was important to them. Um, the third aspect 
was um, the problem solving training, trying to appreciate the complexity of the problems. And that goes back to what Robin just said. Um, it, it can be helpful to solve superficial problems, but oftentimes they're linked to much more profound root causes. And young people felt if those are not understood, appreciated uh, and appraised, then it wouldn't be so helpful. And the fourth point was just for it to be more personalized. Um, and here young people really stressed that problem solving um, isn't a one size fits all approach. Some people really connect with the rational sequential problem solving steps that you're being walked through and it might work really well for them, but other youth go about problem solving in a more intuitive way and that's not necessarily a bad way. And they felt that that wasn't always appreciated in the classic type of problem solving that they had been part of. And they also said, um, your problems with problem solving can look slightly different based on whether you have depression or anxiety, for example, um, and that that was also something that should be taken into account. Yeah, fantastic. That's a really rich input, isn't it? Um, yes, it was fantastic. Yeah. How about your young people, Robin? What did they bring back? So, yeah, I mean, we did a slightly different approach to, so we interviewed young people across multiple countries, so the US, UK, Singapore, Mexico, Myanmar, Lebanon, Ukraine, and Zambia. And we also interviewed practitioners who are providing mental health and support to young people. So we had two groups. We didn't necessarily, we talked a little bit about problem solving with the young people, but we also just talked about their experience. Um, and, you know, this will be no surprise to anybody listening to this, um, the young people really described how poorly understood depression is by peers and the communities they lived in and the amount of stigma, stigma associated with getting help. And that was very, very common. Um, they, it was the conversations we had around depression were similar across all those countries um, in that uh, they talked about when the, when there's, when the way they were feeling was that it, it's worse, they attribute it to be at external factors. So financial problems came up, issues with friends or issues with families, um, or transitions came up, which sort of points again to personalizing and better targeting intervention, what people need when they need it at that time. So uh, as transitions is a really good example of that starting college came up a few times where it seemed they felt that their experience with depression increased um and the practitioners so that was sort of the young people and interestingly a lot of them talked about to kind of cope with their experience with depression they would keep themselves busy do high energy activities try to do enjoyable activities and almost sort of distract themselves and females in particular talked about trying to talk to other people Practitioners um, talked about using problem solving as prevention or treatment, most of them in the context of wider, you know, sort of more packaged interventions, as we were discussing earlier. Um, I did feel it worked. There was a little bit of feedback from a few where it is really hard to, to implement problem solving. I'm a, a former psychologist myself and remember really struggling to help people, to teach people each of the steps and wondering, you know, how practical and did they to go to your point, Carolyn, you know, is did they experience that being taught how to solve problems in that kind of structured way was helpful at all or was it just something that we came up with? Um, so just questioning, do you need to do every step? How is there some flexibility? Um, but all um, talked about most of the interventions that they delivered did help an enormous amount. 
um, and people wanting uh, support more designed to when they need it and maybe less of the structured sessions that they would normally get a little bit more flexibility in, in where and how often. You know, often when you talk to people that have just completed systematic reviews that come back with very little evidence, you're often left with this sort of slightly deflated, near sort of feeling that when you know where to go from here, more research needed. Um, what do you think about problem solving as an active ingredient? Do you think there are any implications for practice from what we know from this evidence that comes from research and um, the views of young people and clinicians? Or do you think it is simply a situation where these reviews have given us more of a focus on what future research should be covering? Carolyn? It is a really good question about implications. I think there are maybe three implications that we can draw. Um, the first is that as a service or as a clinician, um, if I saw a young person and I asked them what they struggled with, and they they would explain to me that they were struggling with certain issues that do seem solvable or where um, it appears to me problem solving could help them. I think that we can suggest it's worth having a conversation with that young person about whether they feel learning about problem solving would help them. Um, and if they don't have moderate or severe depressive symptoms, if they seem mildly depressed and the aim of, of the intervention is to... Um, Boost, boost their coping skills, um, then it may be worth trying problem-solving training. Probably not so much for young people who present with moderate or severe depressive symptoms. And first and foremost, we want their problem, uh, sorry, first and foremost, we want their symptoms to decrease. In that case, um, we probably don't have enough evidence uh, to try problem-solving first. I would say that's maybe a con conclusion we can tentatively draw. Um, the second point is about prevention. Even though we in our review didn't look at prevention studies, um, our findings do suggest that if, given that problem solving, at least in one high quality trial, um, the problem solving training helped with solving personal problems. And if young people can solve those problems more effectively, that might protect them from developing depression, um, depressive symptoms later. So. It's maybe not yet an implication for clinical practice, but for research to explore the potential of problem solving training as a preventative intervention. And specifically so where young people face a lot of stresses and um, chronic adversity. This high quality trial I was talking about was done in low income communities in New Delhi, India. And so those youth you know, would have faced the stresses or difficulties associated with chronic poverty. So again, something to pursue is for, for whom might problem-solving training be particularly helpful as a protective factor in coping skill? And then the third implication really is to engage young people as, as co-researchers um, and in the design or redesign or adaptation of services and the way that problem-solving training is provided to make sure it is acceptable, um, youth-centered, um, and really speaks to young people and what they need based on for example, these four uh, issues that young people have highlighted to us. What do you think, Robin? Would, would you add anything? Do you think there's frontline practice implications from what we know currently? Yep, there are. And I just I also want to speak to um, how research is reported. 
because so I'll start there and then I'll maybe move to um, practice intervention design and um, it could be that we found mixed evidence not because problem solving doesn't work by itself but because the implementation of it was very poor so although you we may have you know a, say a say a protocol for implementing something in a particular way implementation science which is another field of research that CEI works um, globally in has re has really in the last sort of 20 25 years taken off out of a concern of how long it is taking to get things that have been shown to work implemented in routine practice and in policy making settings and practitioner settings and one of the things about understanding whether the quality of the implementation of something related to the outcomes is that when people are conducting studies they actually monitor that when we went to find, we did a second search looking for implementation studies of problem solving, the extent to which it had been implemented as planned and process evaluations of that. We found one published study. So to go back to the black box of implementation, even though our review said mixed findings, we've said in that it could be because the implementation of it was not at a dose or at a quality where that person, that young person, could benefit from the effect of problem solving. So we sort of make a call out to the research community globally to do a better job reporting, tracking and reporting implementation of any intervention in mental health. Because we'll never really understand, you know, the intervention could have been amazing and poorly implemented and therefore the outcomes were poor. Or it could be a very poor implementation, uh, sorry, program or intervention implemented well. And we also equally won't know if we measure that. So I wouldn't sort of say, eh, maybe it doesn't. We just need to get better at relating implementation to outcomes. It also then talks to scale. We cannot scale these practices, these active ingredients, unless we understand how to implement them. And we think this, this sort of push to active ingredients is going to be much more scalable to high-income and lower-middle-income countries because we just will not have the infrastructure to train and support everybody in a structured way. Um, so again, I think we've just got, it's not that do more research, it's let's just report, let's conduct our studies a little bit better and report that research better. So journals like Implementation Science won't let publications through now without a really good description of the implementation of the, of the intervention and measure of that implementation, sort of putting a line in the sand. My second thing though is um, I think uh, the active ingredients push should also be thinking about a next next phase, not just individual ingredients, but the combination of these and more um, practice-based evidence with that's done with rigor where you're almost doing a, like a stepped wedge design or a component analysis. Like if I started with problem solving and I'm tracking the effect, did we get there? If not, if I added this, I think I'd like to see a few more studies. From a practitioner policy point of view, um, arguably using active ingredients that are publicly available that where the implementation is described like what you need to do to implement it well and should allow us to like I was saying earlier better better um, design personalized interventions for the person that we're working with right in front of us or the group should better enable 
um, training and coaching from a distance of arguably paraprofessionals, not necessarily clinical staff all the time, to safely and effectively deliver these. So I really do think it, it's there's a whole area of literature around usability of structured programs. And every time you start working with active ingredients, which we do a lot, we often get um, a lot of feedback around it's, it's more feasible, it relates better to what the person needs, it provides more flexibility, and the training and coaching is better for the field because they're learning how to mix and match against better assessments. So I really do strongly think this is where this needs to go and maybe um, conducting systematic review by or by scoping review or by rapid review will help. But I think only if we really think about what they're what they're actually receiving. Carolyn, I'm going to give you the final word. Are there any kind of future research priorities that you are particularly interested in? Yes, I'm particularly excited to hopefully see so more so-called dismantling studies and dismantling trials uh, come up that try to pick apart components of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. I know one one such trial is underway as we speak, um, and they will be designed, powered. Uh, set up to to really distinguish the different um, active ingredients within those treatment packages to see which one makes the difference. Mm-hmm.